0: Hello, and welcome to The BIM Student. I'm your host, Chetna Chauhan. Our today's guest is not just a BIM manager. He's a champion when it comes to technology adoption. Currently, he's working as a design technology manager in HOK, responsible for their technology adoption and BIM implementation for their Canada business unit. He works closely with clients and project teams to determine project requirements and develops workflows to deliver projects successfully. His BIM expertise has benefited numerous healthcare, transit and airport projects. Though his formal education is in architecture, he expanded his knowledge base working with mechanical, electrical, and structural engineers and loves to collaborate by utilizing technology. As an active member of Canbim community, he's working with Canbim's design and engineering think tank since 2015. He also has some unique cooking skills and is someone I would go to when I need video game recommendations. Please welcome Yith. Karanfil. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And um, I'm I'm so happy I'm doing it with you. Uh, You're one of those people I really look up to when I look at my BIM journey. You're definitely one of those people who stands on the positive side of of my journey. Let's start with a little bit of your background. How did you uh, stumble on BIM? Did you get trained or it was your interest? How, how did you start?
1: Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me and for the kind words. Well, how I started, I guess, uh, goes back to when I was in school. Actually, oddly enough, this is, uh, I believe, 2007 when I first started using BIM applications. Basically, uh, second year of my architecture school, I started learning Archicad, and I was, I was in awe, basically. It's just, I'm like, oh, wow, this software does a lot of stuff. Uh, The interesting thing is they taught us ArchiCAD before AutoCAD, Uh, so the first term we learned ArchiCAD and then they made us do AutoCAD and I hated it, it's just like, it was (laughs) instoperable basically uh, after a software that was designed for architecture, right? So, basically, okay. second year of second year of my bachelor's degree, I was, I think, pretty good with software and with learning these things. Like, the, I was good with technology at the time. Over time, I kept developing my skills further. And when I came to Canada, I started learning Revit. Uh, I actually adopted Revit afterwards. So, my like second game uh, software, actually. And at, at a point, uh, I was thinking I will probably become like a a licensed architect here I, I was shooting for becoming a licensed architect maybe and maybe uh, thought the, the whole BIM management technology management aspect could be just a value added to my career uh, but not become my career but uh, again once I realized oh actually there are people doing this full time and It is pretty interesting to me. I understand that it's not for a lot of people. It's just, I mean, I can tell like some people just find the whole, like the management thing insufferable and that's fine. Uh, It is to me and I enjoy doing it very much. And I don't think I would change it for anything else.
0: (laughs) Oh, and you're amazing at it. Why would you change? Thank you. And you, I think came, came from HH Angus which is a mechanical engineering company, right?
1: Correct. So it's uh, mechanical, electrical.
0: Just, was it just because you came from HH Angus and you had that background, or you just had an interest of managing BIM across disciplines?
1: A friend of mine was actually working at HH Angus, so there was an opening there for uh, like a like a BIM specialist job, and at that time also it was becoming apparent to me that like maybe this is a path I want to take. So um, actually, the Revit support specialist was, I think, the uh, the title. So I applied for that job, so I didn't get that job, but they called me and said, there's a designer position, are you interested? And uh, I figured it might be good for my career to you know, just work on a really high profile job and in a company that uh, is really willing to apply BIM uh, to projects, I mean, just um, so yeah, that's that's basically how I started. And then from there, um, I started to shift more into a BIM specialist role, essentially. And that's basically at a point what I was doing full time, like all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that, that project, that mega project was uh, winding down a bit. And I started getting involved with more, Uh, healthcare chases, like uh, we were uh, basically uh, competing for a lot of other like healthcare projects. And uh, one of them, actually, I basically took from beginning to finish, like a healthcare project that was like a retrofit, had some significant challenges. Uh, Again, like really, (laughs) I think really good experience uh, over there. And I I was pretty lucky, I think, because I, I think also the Uh, I was also mostly working on healthcare and those are severely more complex than uh, some of the other types of jobs. Like, uh, if you, if you're doing like small commercial or, um, even like residential, you know, that's, I mean, that's an all, that's a beast of its own. I think they have their own, uh, different challenges. Uh, I'm not saying like, oh, those are easy, but because the, the turnover, uh, the, the timeline for basically uh, delivering those projects is very strict usually, right? So that's where you uh, keep running into the other challenges and how do you optimize that process and all. Uh, but if you're talking about something like a airport like a healthcare project, those have, um, those are just naturally very, very complex because of the number of systems and how each discipline needs to talk to each other, coordinate, like all that stuff. Um, Anyway, so basically this is where when I was really trying to push the envelope and not only use Revit as a modeling tool, but uh, I also got involved with building some of the libraries and uh, I was involved in actually some of the airflow calculations. So just things like, okay, how do I, I have some calculations. How do I use this to verify my model? Like am I, is is what I'm modeling actually matching uh, what, what, uh, what our design intent was. So uh, we, we were actually doing uh, things like that, which is, again, I was pretty lucky uh, to be there, I think. Uh, and it, it taught me a lot. And I'm, I'm very grateful because I had the room to experiment and fail and succeed, basically, because some, some of these things we were doing, uh, it, there was also some like internal development as well. They, they had like a development specialist. Uh, I think they were pretty innovator for the time, uh, we were like using some tools that didn't exist on the market and looking into, uh, methods that can just improve the work. So yeah. Um, and b- basically I just started, uh, drawing ducts, and from there I went to full blown beam management in, uh, some three years and change.
0: <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's amazing. Um, okay. So if. There are two questions that are coming out of this discussion. One, can a BIM manager who has that kind of interest or has Mm -hmm. that kind of let's say somebody um, who's coming from architecture background or somebody even somebody coming from structural background Mm -hmm. has uh, wants to uh, be in a role of a BIM manager, somebody who wants to manage BIM across disciplines. Do you think they become that thread that can combine all the disciplines? In coordination, which which actually is a lot of times missing, especially if there are different uh, companies as consultants. Mm
1: -hmm. I think like as a as a BIM manager or design technology manager, you really need to have at least a basic understanding of uh, what the person on the other side of the table is trying to achieve. And a lot of times the conflicts are uh, basically because of uh, people having different stakes, right? And when you have an IPD or an integrated, so that's what I was going about. Like when you have a IPD or a integrated uh, practice, you are eliminating some of that. Basically, you don't get to say, well, I've done my job. And if this is like, uh, you know, stopping you from doing something, I don't care. Like it's, it's your problem, right? So uh, let's say if you're consistently working with certain companies, uh, there can be some trust built and the relationship is maybe a bit better. But, um, otherwise, like whenever there's like the slightest conflict and okay, it's just, can you have, you know, your designer do this, like spend one hour so we can, uh, we don't have to spend 10 hours on this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- at that point, basically this becomes like, well, why am I spending that time where, you know, you get to, uh, save some like money basically, uh, but that doesn't really impact me so with an IPD or an integrated practice it's like you lose money I lose money <laughs> so it just kind of comes down to that right, and right. I think it's easier to uh communicate in general but mm-hmm. regardless you're in an IPD setting or not uh I think having a good understanding of uh what the person on the other side of the table is trying to achieve
0: mm-hmm.
1: is very important and I think um there is with an IPD, there's opportunities because you can, um, and IPDs tend to be like lo- longer projects as well, right? Like they're typically not like uh, like a month or two, basically. They're mm-hmm. uh, more like continuous relationships. We-, we-, we are actually doing an IPD now uh, with HOK, but I'm not involved with that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, but jo- joint ventures can be similar as well, not quite, but uh, like, again, you're, the um what what benefits you benefits the team so you're just gonna go into it as a team and uh, yeah and i
0: think also on the whole what happens is that if everybody wants the same result like deliver an asset that has a that suffices the project needs we need to work as a cohesive team and with uh bim deliverables becoming so important i i always feel that uh, a bim manager needs to have that understanding even if like irrespective of what background they come from like they do need to like you said know what the other side what structure is trying to achieve or what mechanical is trying to achieve and and not like work together and not against each other
1: i think i mean nobody wants to deliver a terrible design night. But Uh, uh, it's just, (laughs) here's the thing, like, I mean, everybody wants to deliver that good design, but you want to do it on the budget. Like, and that's, I think what it really comes down to, like the, the budget, the money, uh, it's, (laughs) it's just, um, you you know, like talking about it, uh, I understand like, uh, not, not everybody likes talking about the money, but, but that's what it is about really know like you don't want to spend that one hour that five hours or whatever uh because sure like if i've spent uh you know 200 hours more on this project uh i could maybe just deliver something that's perfect but right. uh but would i also bankrupt my company like that's the kind of thing you need to <laughs> right. think about when you're uh you know at the like management positions basically so uh you have to be constantly uh Watching for your budgets, uh, your t- because your time spent is your budget, basically. In a design right. company, like time is literally money. We literally mostly, money, yes. Yeah, we, we either charge hourly or we basically calculate how many hours is this is going to take me, and then multiply by that. You know, people's expertise, like levels, whatever, right, and give that right. price to the client. So. Uh, and our fees keep getting squeezed, basically. That's basically the uh, reality of uh, architecture uh, or the design of engineering today.
0: Design, yeah. I have seen these days, there is a lot of talk about um, learning programming or learning coding. How much do you think is an important skill for somebody who, who's aspiring to be a BIM manager, and especially um, a, a multidisciplinary BIM manager? Uh,
1: Okay. so. Regarding coding, uh, engineers, I guess, have a bit of a head start usually on that because they tend to get some fundamentals from the school. Uh, We usually get nothing. Right. (laughs) So uh, I have learned some fundamental coding myself, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say you don't need to be, you know, writing full-blown software in C-sharp, right? I mean, that's... That's a specialization of its own, and it's great. I mean, it is, a, uh, I think, a really good career path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are doing just kind of general beam management and you're still able to do that, great, good for you. But there's only a finite amount of things you can learn with your time, basically. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, we need to keep in mind it's a specialization of its own. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that uh, every BIM manager needs to be a coder, Mm -hmm. but uh, learning some coding or at least uh, visual programming like Dynamo or Grasshopper uh, will help you a lot.
0: Okay, you talked about ArchiCAD and Revit. Uh, Are there any other programs in specific you would recommend somebody who is looking, not just being a BIM, not just on a coordinator level, but let's say on a management level, anything other than revit or archicad or basic excels and everything um somebody should be um diving into or at least getting acquainted to
1: excel is a good one actually <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> here's the thing a lot of people think they know excel uh but they have no idea uh, unfortunately that's the case it's just uh Structuring things as data and as a table is a different thing than, you know, it's just, I I see a lot of times, let's say somebody's building a program. uh, Like when I say program, like a building program, right? It's just, there's um, room A, this size, room B, this size in this department, What, whatever, whatever. And they basically just kind of use all these cells to like, they just merge cells, like make fancy titles, whatever. But if I want to take that as data and transfer somewhere, I need to just spend like two hours cleaning that up. So that's not good Excel, okay? I would say Excel is a very good gateway to a lot of things, uh, such as data analysis, uh, building build structuring data. Uh, I mean, it is a bunch of tables at the end of the day. So it's not super sophisticated and that's the, but you you can make it very sophisticated, but should you is, uh, question you should always ask, um, but, uh, basically working with the formulas, lookup tables, like all, all that, uh, the, the lookups like that kind of stuff is actually, uh, that was my gateway to, uh, like low level programming as well yeah. as data pro, uh, data processing as well. So I'd say that's very good, uh, because it's very versatile. Other than that, I mean, what your industry is using, what the uh, because there are, uh, for instance, like if you're on the civil side, right, mm-hmm. you're looking at a completely different set of programs, right? If you're, if you're like a, if you're doing b management for civil engineering, you want to learn maybe, um, uh, maybe Infraworks, maybe you want to learn uh, Civil 3D, or mm-hmm. uh, the uh, a lot of the industry is actually dominated by uh, Bentley products. So uh, I think being, being flexible and actually always always looking out for the next big thing and always uh, looking for uh, new software is part of the job, actually. Oh. Uh, I don't think I've spent like six months without learning a new software, Like even if it's like a tiny tool that, that's like mm-hmm. an add-in or like a um, small thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think there's been like six months in my career where I have not learned a new tool.
0: Oh, but that's just you. <laughs> yeah. And, um, okay, uh, very briefly, if you have to say somebody who is, um, again, coming back to multidisciplinary BIM, how much weightage will you give to BIM? And how much weightage will you give to engineering or architectural understanding? Like, let's say out of 100, it, what an ideal BIM manager should look like. How much BIM should they know, and how much engineering or architecture should they know?
1: Well, I guess you need to know enough to.
0: We are uh, asking for a number out of hundred, percentage. <laughs> okay,
1: percentage. Oh man. Okay. So, y- y- here's <laughs> the thing. The the way I see the with with a BIM workflow, right? You really want. I mean, the, the, this is the this is one of the challenges that the Market is facing right now as we're transitioning from this like uh, 2D drawing sets to like intelligent models. Uh, you really need to understand what's going on when you're modeling these things. Uh, so let's say I want to uh, see how much supply here is going into one room, right? Okay. So. Uh, well, first of all, I need to understand what is supplier, <laughs> what is a room, <laughs> like, so all these like fundamental things that you need to understand, and uh, how do I associate these two with the software I use. Right. So The software side is usually relatively easy to figure out. Like There is so- some severely missing functions in the software we use day to day whether it be revit or something else sometimes like just you look at it like why the hell is this not here and uh those kind of roadblocks will uh depend on what you're really trying to do but i would say like learning the software is maybe maybe 30 percent of the job right
0: but that's that's not even i would say learning the software is not even yeah 30 of being a bim manager even if uh i mean management part of you or um coordination part of you plays a bigger role in that
1: yeah yes you need to have the technical knowledge and you need to have like you need to know your software enough to be able to uh implement what you're trying to do
0: okay let's move to our last section which is uh, the awkward questionnaire? <laughs> so if I haven't made you enough awkward till now, uh, I'm gonna ask you about five questions, which I think uh, you will not be able to answer. Um, okay. uh, so let's let's see. Uh, I mean, maybe you maybe you surprise me, uh, and then I will for for the next podcast I have to do more research. Let's say you're putting a plumbing fixture that is okay. combustible in nature. And you have to put it in a building that is required to be of a non-combustible construction. What is one condition that needs to, uh, that needs to be fulfilled for that?
1: The, 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 does it need to burn at low temperatures. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> okay. So there is something called the flame spread rating.
1: Okay. Okay. So
0: it needs to have a flame spread rating of uh, less than 200. So basically, I mean, we won't go into the calculations, but flame spread rating is that how fast, if it catches a flame, how fast it can spread on the surface. Okay. Okay. So, like, like I told you, it's gonna be. It's not gonna there be. There
1: is anything. something to with it.
0: Okay. According to again, this is going to be um so you've worked a lot on hospitals so this is a question related to hospitals so we have a hospital that is uh, four story it is sprinklered and it has a floor area each floor has a floor area of 100 square meters how okay. many exits do we need from each floor
1: from each f- floor
0: yes yeah, so let's say it's it's a four-story hospital uh-huh. Each floor plate or each flo- floor has a floor area of... Oh, you mean like the sc-
1: two, two fire exits. So, okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. How many exits would we need?
1: Uh, each floor is 100 square meters, you said? Yes. I'd assume two.
0: B- okay. uh, two would be the one. Uh, if it was less than um two-story, it was two-story or less, it would just require one.
1: I mean, huh. Okay. I mean, I, I assume two because for... Uh, or a residential or something it would obviously be enough to have one because mm-hmm. unless you have a super well actually it depends on how long the building is but uh, with a 100 square meter floor plate you're probably not looking more than 40 meters on one side otherwise right. like a 40 to 2 building that's not very uh useful uh,
0: so this might be more uh, of an interest to you um do you know about iso 196 96- 650
1: I know it's existence.
0: It's existence. Do you know how many parts it has? And you can just tell me any two parts, like what does it stay?
1: All right. Do I need to tell you how many parts it has or? How
0: many parts does an ISO, uh, the ISO nineteen six fifty standard have? And, um, I'm not asking, uh, what is there in each part? Like if you know, what is there in each part? Uh, that'll be amazing.
1: Okay. Uh, I have no idea how many parts it has, but I'm going to assume 12, maybe. Well, one of the parts that just uh, kept coming up for me was the, the common data environment. That's, uh, they uh, they really like that term. Uh, that's a bit different here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, uh, I believe level of information possibly is one part of it. That's one thing mm-hmm. UK has and we don't, and I'm jealous of it.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh we'll okay. soon have it. Uh okay, so um it has in total five parts. Okay. So part one, two, three, four, five, and then there is a part zero, which is like a transition guide. So yeah. you know how pass uh, eleven ninety-two got phased out and this this one came in. Mm-hmm. Uh so there is this this um part zero. It's a transition guide from pass eleven ninety two to ISO 1965, uh, 650. Okay. Uh, but the most important part uh, for now, which is being followed religiously, is a part one, which outlines the concepts and principles uh, of how to manage building information. Okay. okay. Uh,
1: so, th- I mean, uh, I guess uh, <laughs> these parts were a bit like bigger chunks than uh, I thought they were. I thought maybe they were like, like a lot of like, smaller parts. Yeah, so
0: there are totally, yeah, five.
1: Honestly, it was like, uh, I, I try to keep uh, on top of it, but I just I just lose interest too quickly. <laughs> so,
0: okay. so never actually uh,
1: read through the thing.
0: Okay uh, uh, so next question is what is the difference between a uniclass number and an only class number?
1: Uh, only classes numbers only. Uh, uniclass has, is alphanumeric? Is, is that the kind of Yeah, difference? that's
0: that's one of the difference. Okay. Uh, but also, um, ISO 1965 mandates Uniclass 2015. It does not mandate Uniclass. Uh, sorry, Omniclass. Uh, and uh, um, Uniclass 2015 has um, a code for everything, every aspect of a construction project. Let's say it has a code for... A railway station, but it also has a code for a security camera on a railway station. So it's that wide. Omni class is not that wide. So the last question: um, What uh, what is the building code or the standard that we follow while designing an electrical layout of a building uh, in Canada?
1: Sorry, uh, what's the electrical code in? And I like that ESA is the organization that issues the permits inside, so it should
0: be something mm-hmm. with me. So, um, okay, so in Canada, it's called Canadian Electrical Code, which is CSA 22.1. And we also follow NFPA 70, which is, which is uh, um, NEC US. So NFPA is the US standard, which is also followed in Canada. And then CEC or CSA is the Canadian standard. CSA. CSA 22.1. Okay. Because there are various parts to it. CSA is the
1: Canadian Safety Authority.
0: Yeah. So CSA 22.1 is the one that deals with electrical code.
1: Okay. I learned something.
0: Okay. Anyways, but thank you so much. It was fun. It was a learning experience. And maybe you come back again for another episode.
1: Anytime. Uh, Thanks for having me.